Hi, I'm the self-development coach, Johnny Lawrence, and welcome to the Self-Development Podcast. The second principle is learning to honor our hunger because we disrupt with our very natural biological cues. So hunger for me is like needing a wee. Why would you ignore it? It is a biological cue in your body that you require more energy. But because of diet industry, we're like, no, 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 go chew some gum. Go have a glass of water. You can overcome this. In the same way, if you need a wee, just don't go for a wee. Hold on, what's gonna happen? You're gonna end up peeing yourself. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Self-Development Podcast. Today, I'll be chatting with nutrition and intuitive eating practitioner, Rose White. Rose is the co-founder of the not-for-profit organization, Reframe Club, and is the co-host of the Reframe Podcast. She loves to write and believes that everyone deserves to be at peace with food. Rose is a good friend of mine and her knowledge and experience during these types of conversations consistently has a profound impact on myself and the people listening. The way in which Rose is able to explain very complex psychological theories and make them feel understandable and actionable is remarkable, if I'm completely honest. This episode is mind-blowing as we move between many topics all relating to each other, but all equally being separate topics with clear methodology towards their approaches. Rose and I discuss areas such as a clear definition of intuitive eating, why people develop eating disorders, the mind and body connection, intellectualizing trauma and body work. Rose also offers some guidance for difficult relationships with food and some perspective on yo-yo dieting and the labeling of food as good and bad. As I mentioned, Rose and I are very good friends and she is someone who I could listen to for hours and this is certainly one of those types of conversations. So let's get to it. How are you today? I'm good. I'm well, actually. I'm glad it's Friday. It's been a long week. Yeah. Um, looking forward to a restful weekend. But yeah, I'm good. Anything, Thank you for having fun? me. It's a privilege. Oh, it's oh, mate, it's it's absolute privilege to have you on. I mean, we did a, a live together. I was on your podcast once. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said to you before we press record, it, it blew me away to think that we haven't had a podcast episode yet. I was like, huh, how's this not happened? We Every time we chat is a potential podcast. <laughs> so, I know, I know. So yeah, I'm really glad we've managed to make it happen. Yeah, yeah I'm so excited. Am I. So am I. But listen, why don't you start by telling people uh, a bit more of a better introduction of yourself, Rose? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah, no, I am Rose. And um, as Johnny said, I work as a nutrition intuitive eating practitioner, but I haven't always done that. I started my working life in publishing, magazine publishing, in fact, Um, working in market research and marketing and across various sectors during, gosh, 16, 17 years of life. Um, A large proportion of that was in the third sector, though, towards the end, working for charities and not for profits, because kind of where my passion lay. And then I hit my late 30s and had a complete midlife career crisis and decided to retrain in nutrition and behavioral coaching. And it was whilst I was studying that I was introduced to the concept of a health-centric as opposed to weight-centric approach to well-being. And within that, the framework of intuitive eating. And it really spoke to me and my own experiences because I have a history of um, an eating disorder in my late teens and early 20s. And whilst I recovered from the eating disorder, I think I still inhabited quite a few problematic um, behaviors around food. So kind of compensatory behaviors. You know, I was known for if I thought I'd you know, eaten too much cake the day before, I'd get up and go for a run 
the morning after. Um, so I think I, I still, within the wellbeing world, inhabited some of those less supportive behaviours. And when I discovered this health-centric approach and intuitive eating, as I said, it really spoke to me. And then I took that on board went through the process myself, and then it went on to inform the rest of my training over the past five years. And I now run a private practice based in Bath, and I work with those who are struggling with erratic eating, emotional eating, weight cycling. Um, I have a very special interest in selective eating in children, which is also known as fussy eating. Um, and that's because I have three children of my own. Um, and as a mum, I've experienced it, but I also have two children on the spectrum. And selective eating and sensory needs are often very tied up together. And I provide parent mentoring support sessions for parents of those who are diagnosed with an active eating disorder. Although I don't currently work one-to-one myself with those who have an active eating disorder, I like to support the carers of those that do. Um, and then I, yeah, I co-founded Reframe Club with my brother, James. Um, and it's a online self-directed nutrition, body image, intuitive eating set of courses that we um, provide at reduced cost for everyone, but that allows us to then give it for free to other charities so that their service users can access it. So yeah, that's the kind of, that's the joy of my life, being able to do that. It really is. I, so, yeah, can, that's uh, me. <clears throat> I can back that up. You, you, you do really love that. You become so animated when you talk about it as well. You're a very mm. kind soul. Very kind. Oh, thank you, Johnny. Uh, thank I was just, you. I was just, uh, I didn't, not sure I knew that, that you supported people who had um, children that are considered fussy eaters, if, if that's. Yeah. Been, yeah. That's, I, that's that, again, that was born out of kind of my own experiences. And then I went on to do some additional training in, in children's nutrition and selective eating. Um, and having a child on the spectrum, or two children on the spectrum, um, the, the difficulties around that there was no kind of support mm. around me you're kind of it's one of those things that, that you from other people there can be very very quick judgment oh yeah just tell them to eat it make them sit mm. at the table yeah yeah let them go hungry yeah. and and also it kind of integrates with the intuitive eating and raising intuitive eaters so taking the anxiety away from food and away from the table and away from those conversations around food so a child feels safe um, and confident and curious to want to explore new foods. Yeah. Um, and that's all around language and our relationship yeah. with food and food scripts, which is which is what all intuitive eating is about. Yeah. And I mean, to, to those people that <clears throat> that say those things as well, you know, like I would just make them eat it or they'll soon learn mm. when they don't get dinner mm. and all that sort of I know that they're well meaning, but what I would say is, tr- is try to understand instead of instruct. Because yeah. until you're in that position, it's really difficult to understand. I, I remember having friends who's, who's, um, well, our, our child didn't sleep very well. And mm. everyone was telling us, oh, you should do control crying. You should do this. You should do that. And we, we got to very desperate stages where we tried some of that stuff. And whenever I think back of it, I had this wave of guilt because it so clearly wasn't aligned with my values at all. It was just, we were so desperate and tired, but lots of people gave advice to us of this and that. And, and it was all well-meaning, but then, one or two of them ended up with their second child not sleeping. And uh, Caroline and I got it crap by then. <laughs> so, so we masked the smugness, but we, 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 we stopped short of giving them the same advice they gave us. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, said we, it's we tried so true. To, yeah, because I think there's so much of parenting 
that is intuitive. And I think sometimes you can get confused by lots of other people's opinions. And like I say, it's often well-meaning. You're not going to ask your, your sort of greatest enemy what you should do. Are you going to ask people that, that love you? And um, people like to have answers, don't they? <laughs> yeah, I, actually, one, your experience really speaks to me with my middle child. Exactly the same. I look back on the control crime we did after desperate, desperate, desperate times. And um, yeah, still struggle with that. Um, yeah, I do work, yeah. by the way. Um, no. <laughs> but um but I also, as you as you said those words, as you you know said, we all want to look for answers. We all want an explanation. We mm. all look outside of ourselves. Um, we want someone to supply something to us, a, a framework, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, that speaks to me in terms of you know our relationship and understanding of nutrition and food. Yeah, because there's so much noise. There are so many experts in the room i'm going to put that in inverted commas um so many oh you um, troublemaker you <laughs> so many experts in the room um who you know they say it with enough authority that you think well i must be wrong mm. they've told me that if i eat this amount of calories that should be enough i shouldn't feel hungry yeah yes yes then you're so right it's that should isn't it soon yeah. as you use my the child should food. sleep yeah, should, as soon as yeah. you use that word should, you're running somebody else's objectives. You're not running your Absolutely. own. Absolutely. And it's Absolutely. so, that is such an important understanding because then there's further learning after that point. Mm -hmm. But realizing that in that moment, when you're saying that word should, just just ask yourself kindly, where does that should come from? Where, where is it from? Like, is it is it is it from a good source, bad source, whatever? You know, it's, it's important to know that. But that's a good place to start. Um, can you clear give us a clear definition of what intuitive eating is and what it is not? Because I think, you know, you, you do see a lot of memes and whatnot of, of what intuitive eating is. And if I could eat intuitively, I'd do all this, all very unhelpful. <laughs> um, yes. but, but I think someone like yourself is going to have a really good shot at, at sort of giving it a really good, clear explanation. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many misconceptions around intuitive eating and um, those misconceptions it's like Chinese whispers, especially within the fitness world, I'll say that it gets um, miscommunicated and misrepresented. Um, and it's commonly positioned as not being health promoting. Mm. And the complete opposite is true. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to give this a very, I'm going to be very clear in my description of intuitive oh. eating, I hope, so we can clear this up. So it is a self-care framework that was developed by two registered dietitians. Okay, so it's not something that was just grabbed from the air. It is evidence-based. And it was developed back in 1995. So it has some very weighty history and studies behind it. And the two registered dietitians are Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And you can read their books, you can follow them on um, social media, you can discover their website um, to dig down even further. But it's a very well-proven framework for helping heal what I would term problematic relationships with Food. So things such as emotional eating, weight cycling, commonly known as yo-yo dieting, erratic eating, and so forth. And what it aims to do is to integrate intuition, instinct, um, emotional awareness mm. of ourselves, our rational thought, along with nutritional understanding. And it's described as being weight inclusive. And that means that we make improving health and well-being the goal rather than chasing some arbitrary number on the scale. 
Say that again. That's important. Yes. So it's described as being weight inclusive. And that means we seek to improve health and well-being in every aspect because our emotional well-being is as important as our, our physiological well-being. We make that the goal rather than chasing an arbitrary number on the scales. And it is evidence-based. It has a validated assessment scale and it has over 100 studies to date, um, some of which clearly demonstrate its positive impact on the biomarkers of health, such as reduced cholesterol, reduced, reduced blood pressure, improved dietary quality, um, and improvement in general eating patterns. It is an amazing framework. Mm -hmm. It isn't, I'll eat what I want when I want. Yeah. And that was, that was going to be my next question because I think that is the misconception, you know, like, uh, you know, having been in the fitness industry before I have come up against diet questions, my, my whole life, mm -hmm. my whole career mm -hmm. in it. And in the first five years, I did my best to answer them. Um, thinking that it was my responsibility to, to provide dietary advice. Um, I later found out it wasn't my responsibility to do that. Um, what it was, was to give guidance, to <laughs> point people in the right direction, to, to try my best to understand them and their situation um, specifically. And a lot of the time when intuitive eating came in, people would say, oh, well, intuitively, I'd just eat what I liked and I would do this and I would do that. And I know that that isn't what intuitive eating is, but, I struggled to explain mm -hmm. what it was instead of what it wasn't. So I wonder if you could just help with that little sort of, I don't know yeah. if it's a myth buster or what really, but. Well, I think it's uh, the clearest way of doing it is to describe the 10 principles that it's based upon. Right. So the 10 principles are firstly, rejecting the diet mentality. Mm. And by that, we mean the instinct to restrict unnecessarily um, to under eat to conform to a very prescribed way of eating that isn't sustainable for any length of time. But it's been very normalized. Diet yeah. culture is so normalized. In the same way, you know, drinking is in society. It's mm. so normalized. Yeah. So it's rejecting that because that pattern of restriction feeds into an unsustainable relationship with food. We fall off the diet. We feel guilty and shameful about that. Um, we fall off because we can't sustain eating such a low amount of food. Um, we backlash eat mm. because our blood sugar control is, our blood glucose control is all over the place. Um, we somehow take responsibility for that, that somehow we failed the diet rather than the diet failing us. Oh. And therefore we seek the next solution. And I'll be really honest, if the diet industry worked, they'd be all out of business. <laughs> so obviously true. You know, there is a particular <laughs> diet club who if you maintain your weight loss for, I think it's 12 months, you gain lifetime membership. Okay, if that business model were true, if it really worked, they'd have no members. Mm. Because, well, it, they would, you know, they would never pay. They'd be free. It'd be free forever for everybody within a year. Yeah. So it's rejecting the diet mentality. The second principle is learning to honor our hunger because we disrupt with our very natural biological cues. So hunger for me is like needing a wee, right? Why would you ignore it? It is a biological cue in your body that you require more energy. Oh yeah. But because of diet industry, we're like, no, 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 go chew some gum, go have a glass of water. You can overcome this in the same way. If you 
need a wee. Just don't go for a wee. Hold on. Do a dance. Cross your legs. <laughs> What's going to happen? You're going to end up peeing yourself. You're you wet so your right. knickers. <laughs> the same thing happens. We trigger primal hunger. We can't swim a length of the pool and not come up the other end gasping for air. It's the same principle. Mm. So it's learning to tune back in because when we disrupt that over time, we also, you know, we impact how our body um, releases the chemicals that control our hunger and fullness. So they're ghrelin and leptin and they become really disrupted and we ignore the cues. Our body just goes, oh, you know, I'm not sending it out anymore. Quite often I speak to people who are very restrictive eaters and they say, I don't know when I'm hungry. Mm. I don't feel hungry until it gets to six o'clock and I come home from work and then I feel out of control. That's understandable. You no longer have, you're no longer in control. Your body is desperate to get your blood sugar up to a safe level and you will no longer be involved in that process. Wow. Consciously. Wow. The third principle is to make peace with food. And that is around bringing some neutrality to the language we use around food and not, um, applying a moral framework, not putting food into the should, should not eat, making rules around food. This is bad because several things happen. One, we begin to have thoughts around those foods that trigger negative emotions. So I feel guilty that I ate that thing. And then we either feed into the further restriction cycle, or I feel guilty. I've blown it. I might as well eat the lot or we're not habituated around the food. So the number of times I work with clients who'll say things to me like, I can't have Nutella in the house because I can't control myself around it. But when they do have access to it, they'll eat the entire jar. Mm. So it's about habituating ourselves around food and bringing a neutral language to it so it no longer becomes the forbidden fruit or the thing that we associate with feeling bad about ourselves and realizing that all foods fit. There is space for everything. Right? There are space for play foods and space for the foods that nourish us and make us feel well. The fourth principle is to challenge the food police. Now, the food police really is, it's kind of like the diet industry taking the form of your inner critic. And it I, is, I feel like this is a rose made up concept. I like this. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. These are, these are the concepts of the, um, of the two registered dietitians. The these are the police. principles, the food police. And the food police are the ones you hear. They're walking around with a megaphone, <laughs> slapping tickets on everything. You can't eat that. Oh my God, you ate that brownie. You need to pay a penance for that. Oh, I love it, Rose. Okay, so it's getting control of that voice and developing those supportive ally responses in the same way we do to our inner critic and understanding where the food police came from because we all inherit a food script we all inherit a set number of beliefs or rules some we accumulate over time you know we read something in women's own oh no we mustn't do this and i mustn't eat after six and mm. that becomes a belief um we grew up in a home where we were told we had to clear everything on our plate yeah that becomes part of our food script so we no longer know how to recognize comfortable fullness because we habitually overeat. Yeah. So there's a big piece of work, which is understanding the, the, the food script, what we bring to the table. That's a terrible pun, but it's true. Is that, is that a mum joke? It's a mum joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good thing. My teenagers have zero interest in ever listening to anything I ever do. Um, respecting your fullness is the fifth principle. So again, that's a bit like honoring your hunger. It's understanding when you're comfortably full. Mm. getting satisfaction from food if you're only ever eating protein bars <laughs> you're never going to be satisfied you're going to seek you're going to graze we need to have we need to enjoy our food to be able to say yeah i've had enough 
Yeah. Um, and learning to honor our feelings without using food. So that's bringing awareness to how we food serves us. Yeah. How these patterns of behavior are serving us. What space are they filling? How, how are they a coping mechanism for us? What is the payoff mm. I'm getting from this relationship with food or this pattern of behavior with food? Um, the eighth principle is to respect our bodies. And that's about the truth is we don't value, we don't take care of the things we don't value. And so often I hear in clients this sense of, well, I'm not worthy until I am oh. this size, this number, this shape. Therefore, I'm not going to go get my nails done. I don't get my hair done. I don't buy that lipstick. I don't put body moisturizer on. I don't want to go and go to the yoga because, you know, I'm not enough now. So it's about learning to respect the body you're in now and recognizing that it's worthy of tender, loving care. Um, principle nine is exercise, feel the difference. And that's really about um, exploring your relationship with movement. And ensuring it's coming from a place of enjoyment and fun and self-care and not self-punishment. Mm -hmm. And then the 10th principle is honoring your health with gentle nutrition. And by that, we mean understanding how food supports us, understanding how to eat in a way that makes us feel energized and well, and I can concentrate and I no longer have the cravings and I'm no longer sinking into the bread bin when I get home because I've kept my blood glucose levels in check all day, but I also know there's room for for play food and it's what I do consistently over time that makes the difference. So that is intuitive eating. <laughs> Mic drop. Can you see why Rose is so awesome? I can. That, is, uh, that was amazing. That, that was so much there. I was writing loads and loads of stuff down there. I absolutely love that. And what that, what that helps me realize is that, you know, one of the reasons why I now formally coach instead of PT is because I remember there were so many meetings in coffee shops where I looked at somebody mm. who was convinced that diet and exercise was the answer to their problems. And I would say, I remember after a while, I'd, I'd write, I'd say, look, I can write a program down on this sheet of paper. I can write some dietary guidance down on here. And if you do it, it will work. But the fact yeah. is you either won't do it, you'll find it unsustainable or you'll become unhappy. So mm. actually this isn't the answer. <laughs> the answer is something deeper. And the answer, if you ask me, is in those 10 things that you just spoke about. If, if, if everybody looked into that, everybody looked into them areas, I think they would be blown away what they would discover if they were honest. Absolutely. With themselves. Yeah. I really do. That, that was fantastic. Thanks for that. Good. I would like to talk too much. Um, I would like to just if it's okay with you, Johnny, put a little mm. caveat on intuitive eating. I think it's important to do that right now, only because I know that I have training in eating disorders. Um, it's not a framework that's used for the treating of active, active eating disorders um, because active eating disorders require a very um, different, very specific form of intervention mm. where weight restoration or the elimination of purging behaviors, for example, is crucial to an individual being able to engage in the therapeutic process. And that's because low weight and malnutrition have a very um, direct impact on our neurological system. Yeah. Um, and where there's a particularly low weight, refeeding needs to be done by a registered dietitian. So, um, and under the supervision of a doctor, I'm putting that in as a disclaimer because there are people who go beyond their scope of practice out in the wide world. And I just want to make sure that everybody who's 
listening here knows what they should be looking for and what they should be asking for depending on their needs yeah and that was very important to you to to, to say it was. that i needed to what, get that in yeah, yeah and we, we spoke about it before and we we you know a lot of the time with these podcasts i put questions over to people because i don't want to put them on the spot or anything like that mm. um unfortunately as professionals we don't walk around with that knowledge always in our head well some people do <laughs> i'm not one of those <laughs> um but um you know, we spoke about it and we spoke about how it could be misconstrued and everything, but we decided that that was exactly why we'd have the conversation to yes. help sort of clarify things in, in, yeah. in a better way and to, to sort of myth bust and sort of put things in the right category. So yeah, we're trying. <laughs> yes. Absolutely no, fine. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the airspace to do that, Johnny. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> any, anytime, anytime. I've got a question for you. Do you have a goal in life? Do you have that one thing that you want to achieve, but no matter how hard you try, there's always something that seems to stop you? I found myself sort of stuck in a rut, really. I've always wanted to write a book, but I've never done it. I just felt completely stuck in a hole and I didn't want to be in it, but I didn't know how to get out of it. For a long time, that was me too, until I figured out a way to finally overcome my limiting beliefs and not take no for an answer. And I want to teach you to do the same thing. That's why I've designed the Life Goal Discovery four-day masterclass. I feel probably in a more positive place now than I felt in a, in a long, long time. It's genuinely changed my perspective on everything I do on a daily basis. I've done big things. I've done well. Four days of on-demand coaching sessions from myself, showing you how to fulfill your potential and get closer to your goals. Do you want to discover a path to that one thing that you always wanted to do? Stop what you're doing now and sign up for my masterclass by heading over to schoolofselfdevelopment.com. Tell us a bit more about why people do de develop eating disorders, though, because, I mean, that is, mm. like you say, something separate, but also really quite, you know, it's, I know it's quite close to your heart anyway. It's, it's separate, but it's related <clears throat> yeah. because we know that dieting is the first symptom of an eating disorder. It sits above in every eating disorder. It starts with a diet, yeah. right, and then becoming successful at it. Um, or with the perception that they are. Um, so it is related because, and I think it's important to mention that there are so many people who sit in that gray area of problematic eating that yep. wouldn't, um, qualify clinically to be considered having an eating disorder, but nonetheless, their relationship with food has a very direct impact on their emotional well-being. Sorry, just is, so, is, 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 um, is eating disorders or disordered eating, is that on a sliding scale or is there like, how is well, that an eating, Yeah, eating disorders is defined by a medical diagnosis, which is based right. on like criteria of the patterns of eating, weight, blood work, you know, various specific diagnostic yep. criteria. Um, but even then, if someone gets an eating disorder diagnosis, the tolerance for inpatient treatment is really, really high. So there are a lot of, especially young people in the community who are left kind of a bit to their own devices. They may get a set number of um, therapy sessions within the NHS. They might get a phone call once a week from an eating disorders nurse. Mm. And that's it. And um, steps the influencer. <laughs> and, scary. Uh, yeah, yeah. TikTok, yeah. which is yeah. TikTok is a very dangerous platform for, for um, eating disorders, I'm afraid. Um, uh. But also, I kind of that's why I'm kind of segueing off the. We'll come back to your question in a moment, Johnny. But, we, we knew this would happen. But, <laughs> but the fact, but I guess that's why I do the parent mentoring sessions because so many young people are left 
you know, the family are doing the work of implementing recovery mm. and caring for someone with an eating disorder is a huge physical and emotional toll because in some, whilst you're dealing with the eating disorder, your child isn't always in the room with you. You are talking to the eating disorder voice. Mm. I call it ED. You're talking to ED, not your child. It's ED that's slamming the doors. It's ED that's calling you the names. It's ED that's fighting you at the table. And you can lose sight of your child for a while. And that's a really huge thing. Um, and to keep turning up day in, day out to do that work with your child is, well, it's love that drives it. Um, but your well-being as, as a carer, as a parent, is integral to supporting your loved one with the eating disorder and the work that happens outside the therapy room because we can't hold others until we can hold ourselves. You know, we need to be able to regulate in the moment. Fear is, a, you know, as a parent, watching your child go through an eating disorder, and I can only talk from the point of view of being a mum to a child with autism who went through a stage of imploding and she would go into very um, shutdowns for hours, hours and hours and hours and feeling very helpless and feeling very frightened. Mm -hmm. And fear makes it harder to regulate ourselves. It makes it harder to sleep. It makes it harder to eat. It makes, you know, so we have to, I like to be able to support parents to keep holding themselves during those difficult times so that they can keep showing up and yeah. doing the work. Very powerful words. Got goosebumps the whole way through that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh... Yeah, but circling back to your question about, um, you have to ask the question again, Johnny. What are we circling back to? <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me a bit more about um, why people develop yeah. eating disorders? Yeah, I can. Um, there's no kind of, this is, this is my learning from my training. So I undertook, I have a diploma in eating disorders. Um, I did, I worked, I've done, a huge amount of training with the national center for eating disorders. Um, it was weighty. It was weighty. Um, so my understanding is that there's no, and this is really powerful for me to learn as someone who's had an eating disorder doing, you know, to, to, to come back and go, Oh, okay. I now understand why and how. So rather than there being a particular kind of tick list or a known cause, it's, it's a perfect storm. Really. So we talk about the three pieces, the predisposing factors, the precipitating factors. So that's the thing that fires the gun and the perpetuating factors. They're the things that kind of allow the eating disorder to become embedded. Right. So predisposing factors can be anything from our kind of, there's some suggestion there's a genetic propensity because we know that we can have a genetic propensity to being um, a highly sensitive person yeah. or intrinsically fearful our environment, our family dynamics, our personality type. So I definitely tick the box for perfectionism, people pleasing. People with anorexia um, often described as being very kind. Um, development, so if we go through puberty early, that can be a predisposing factor. Sexual identity issues can be a factor um, and traumatic events can all kind of lay the foundations. And then the precipitants, so the things that fire the gun can be things like teasing, bullying, um, 
very commonly going through the normal stage of putting weight on in puberty. Mm, so a yeah. normal prepubescent weight gain that then perhaps we get teased or bullied about, or perhaps we go through puberty early and we're developing before our peers are, which makes us then very self-aware of our bodies. Yeah. Divorce, loss, transitions, trauma, all of those things can be the thing that fires the gun, but it's not those events that cause the eating disorder. It's those events within the context of the predisposing factors. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And as I said, what we know is that dieting is the first symptom and then the eating disorder kind of evolves to become useful. So for anorexia, and I know this is very much my own story, um, it can help manage numb feelings because when we're malnourished, we become disconnected from, it's hard to be cognitive. It's hard to be thinking because the body puts everything into keeping us going. Yeah. Um, so it serves in, in, in that respect. Um, it can keep our carers close. It can be a way, and this again was very much from, for me, I grew up in a family where trying to communicate, weren't really allowed to talk about negative feelings. We weren't allowed to talk about what happened behind closed doors. And I, you know, I know we share a quite similar background story in that respect. Um, it can be a way of communicating pain. So for me, it was a way of communicating I'm suffering, my internal suffering, when I wasn't in an environment where it allowed me to verbalize that. Yeah. And for others, it can, be, it can be things like avoiding having to grow up or take responsibility. And, and equally for me, in my own experiences, I had a huge amount of pressure on me to achieve. I was the eldest. I was naturally a high achiever, which is another presupposing factor. Um, I think my dad vicariously wanted to live a lot of his dreams through me. And I think subconsciously, my eating disorder was a way of rebelling because I didn't have to engage in university. I dropped out of university because I couldn't engage because I was sick because I didn't want to be doing that thing, but I had no way of telling them that. Wow. So a subconscious <clears throat> way of screaming, no. And then the eating disorder kind of becomes part of your identity. So it can be really hard to unhook from. Yeah. And then the perpetuating factors, as we touched on before, you know, it could be a way of coping. Um, I should also mention in, in bulimia, for example, the, the paybacks around a feeling of control and a feeling of relief when we feel we've been out of control. Yeah. So when those binging episodes appear, it's like a instant relief. Yeah. And then it also plays with your opioid system. So it can become addictive. Purging can become addictive. And then it just becomes a way in which we learn how to manage our moods. So I, I will mention, I actually started with bulimia and it developed into anorexia. So I've been in both camps. And then it, you know, as I said, the perpetuation factors of things like it becomes the way of coping. There's habitualness, stuckness around it. Um, it impairs our neurological and physical functioning. So it's really hard to get out of, you know, to think rationally, to not have a very rigid way of thinking. Um, and then the mindset that comes with eating disorders, you know, we hold these beliefs. This is where the, you know, this is, it's not just in eating disorders. The mindset is around the beliefs we hold around food, our body image and ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And that all keeps us stuck. So yeah, it's a, it's a co- complex storm. It all comes, comes together. But what we do know is that dieting is the first symptom. Yeah. I mean, you, you just mentioned a couple of things there, you know, you, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, kindredness on, on our stories mm. and, and mm. Our, our trauma. You also mentioned that uh, your, your battles with disordered eating. So mm. it sort of prompts the next question, really. Um, what drew you to become interested in sort of the mind body connection as it relates to trauma? Um, we've mentioned that quite a few times about how, it, you know, it's not just a, a mental thing it's a physical thing too right yeah I think it started with an awareness so when I did my training I started I went back into therapy myself and I'm very good at intellectualizing everything I'm very good at you know the awareness piece I you know done the study read the books I can sit there and say you know I know that I'm doing this because it serves me this way etc etc and I would sit in my sessions And when it came to the subject of things like the shame I felt, I would physically feel a constriction in my throat. I would feel weight on my chest. I have carried, well, I had, past tense, carried around a knot in my left shoulder for circa 10 years of my life. And it would throb. And I would say to my therapist, I feel like I'm intellectualizing everything but my body is still holding on Mm. and it would be triggered. It was like, it would echo through me. It would be triggered by someone stood at a customer service desk, raising their voice over the fact that they haven't got the receipt for the Marks Spencer's trousers and my heart rate would go up. My hands would shake. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And in those situations, which I found my body was remembering, my limbic system was remembering. Um, I would instantly feel shame again. Somehow it's my fault that lady had lost her receipts for her Marks and Spencer's trousers. And so I began to put together the puzzle that actually what I was experiencing in my body and these feelings of shame and these echoes were telling me I hadn't, hadn't gone. I could talk about it till the cows came home, but it hadn't, oops, sorry, it hadn't gone. My limbic system was still reacting. And then I read two amazing books. I read um, When the Body Says No by Dr. Gabor Mate, which yeah. is an amazing piece of work about the mind-body link. And then um, My Body Keeps Your Secrets by Lucia Osborne Crowley. And this is written from the perspective of, uh, she did hundreds of interviews with women, trans and non-binary people, and she's a lot of, there's a lot of studies and research in here. Um, it's a very well-researched book about how trauma and especially shame manifests in the body. Mm. And suddenly I felt so seen. I went, oh my God, that's me. That's what happened to me. So we should, yeah. I mean, I grew up in, in a household where there was domestic violence. Um, but I wasn't allowed to talk about feelings and emotions. That was shamed. Um, wasn't allowed to talk about my eating disorder. <laughs> um, and then I was subject to a sexual assault at 17 and I never told anybody. And I'm 42 now, or well, 42 in June. And it was the realization that I was still carrying something in my body that wasn't mine to carry anymore. 
Thank you for telling us that. No, you're very welcome. And I think there was an extraordinary thing in, in this book, My Body Keeps Your Secrets. It's the concept of shame transmission. Have you ever come across it before? Oh, sure, actually. I don't think I have. So the concept of tra- shame transmission is, is when we experience abuse or um, assault, the shame that the individual, the perpetrator should feel is transmitted to the victim. The victim takes it as their own and then carries it. And that realization that I was carrying shame and shame is something that has colored so much of my self-belief and my sense of self. The realization that the shame didn't belong to me anymore and I could hand it back was incredibly liberating. And that along with the awareness that my body was still reacting to any environment that reminded me of past events, traumatic events, but was still feeding that sense of shame, led me to my interest in bodywork and the physical release of trauma through bodywork. Not just talking therapy. That was a... Uh... That was a, an answer that gave me full body uh, goosebumps again. Wow. I don't know if it's that or the window's open. On the window's door, open. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just but, got a draft, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, though, thank you for, for your honesty. And, um, you know, you don't need to talk about these things, um, but you do. And I know why you do. You do because you want people to know that you understand mm-hmm. and that where you're coming from is a real place. And I, I absolutely get that. And, I mean, I had a moment with, with my father where um, I went back and I tried to I tried to articulate some of the ways I felt and how he made me feel as a child. And I remember having this moment where I was talking and it was like, he was in a room with a different person. He wasn't listening to me. It wasn't, Mm. he wasn't, he wasn't interested. And Mm. that's when I remembered, I realized in that moment that there was an issue between him and I, but it wasn't my issue. It was his. Yeah. And I I handed it back. And that's, that's the feeling I got there when you were speaking, just, you know, that transfer of shame. I've, I've never, never heard that before that's impacted me quite quite a lot actually yeah it's <laughs> so, an amazing book yeah it is i have to definitely have to write that down in a second but um thank you for that rose i appreciate that a lot um you talk about intellectualizing sort of your trauma or your experiences um do you know of any ways of releasing trauma from the body well i didn't until <laughs> i had this amazing experience and now i am a huge advocate for something called emotional release massage so i went on a yoga retreat towards the end of last year um booked in for a massage with the therapist there an incredible woman called grace and i just thought i was getting a massage <laughs> and i didn't know that she actually is a trauma informed massage therapist and i this was on the back of 3 days of yoga. Now I'm talk- this is a real, I'm talking from a real place of privilege, right? Like oh, I was at a yoga retreat and I've done three solid days of yoga. Yeah. I sound like a twat, but this is my experience. You don't, uh, but carry on. <laughs> I'm worried about that too. Um, <laughs> but I think because I'd done that, my nervous system must've been in a very calm place, right? It must've been very regulated. And I went into this therapy room and she said to me, what's, you know, any issues? I said, I've got this not in my shoulder. I've seen everyone about it. Chiropractors, osteopaths, massage therapy. No one can ever, no one can ever shift it. 
anyway, she began to work on me and she worked on my left side and she barely touched me. And she said, um, and I began to cry, like really, really cry. And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's not, it's not. Um, <laughs> and she said, please, honestly, this happens all the time. This happens all the time. And I thought, I bet it doesn't. I bet she doesn't get these random snot crying into her nice spa-like towels all the time. And then she said to me, what are you feeling as I'm working on this side? And I said, well, the word feeling keeps coming up. Just keep hearing the word feeling. And then she moved to my right side and she said, what's coming up for you as I'm working on this side? And I said, coping. She was really, really quiet. And then she moved to the front of me and she ran her hands over the, both my shoulder blades and no word of a lie, I sat up straight on the bed, coughing like there was talcum powder coming out of me. It was the no most way. bizarre experience. Yeah. And she said to me, Rose, our energy in our body is held on our left side and our right side. And our left side is, it's not feminine and masculine in terms of gender, but in terms of feeling is what we hold on the left and our kind of doing energy is on, on the right. And she said, were you aware that that knot in your shoulder had an emotional charge? I said, oh, I have no. <laughs> no. I'd been sobbing and sobbing and unlike any other massage I'd had before where they you know they dig in and it's painful she barely barely touched me it was it, I cannot even begin to put into words the experience and she said to me Rose and that's when she told me I am an emotional release massage therapist I do trauma-informed work and I think my body was in a place where my nervous system was able to let it go yeah. and I went back and saw her and by the way, the knot went, <laughs> it completely went. And then I went back and saw her one other time. Um, and again, equally an amazing experience. Um, but I can say hand on heart after 10 years of that knot sitting with me, I haven't got it anymore. That's amazing. And the other thing that that's come amazing. out of it is that my nervous system feels more regulated. So I can, I've got teenagers, so they can become complete little shouty door slamming people sprites <laughs> and um in the past i would have found that very triggering i find anger a very triggering emotion and i would actually remove myself and i noted and i spoke to my husband about this and my therapist my body doesn't react in the same way anymore That's i can amazing. hold myself yeah it was incredible so yes that that is what i found wow wow so you're a full believer now I am. And I thought yeah. that was all a bit woo, but it, <laughs> but it wasn't. Well, you it know, is, it's if, true. if anyone else had told me that, because I mean, I've heard aspects of that story before um, via a very excitable WhatsApp stream. <laughs> from it yourself. was incredible. It, yeah, you was blown away by it. That was, and I am. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I just. But uh, when we, yeah, when we think about it, why wouldn't it be the case? Yeah. Because some of our, our limbic system is, you know, we hold if we are witness to traumatic events before the part of our brain that can bed down memories is developed, um, we will still react to those triggers, even though we have no memory of them. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is, it makes absolute physiological sense. Well, even the word feeling, if you think about it, you yeah. know, when people say feelings, it's like, yeah. it's, it's there. I feel, <laughs> You're yeah, feeling I, it, you know? feel I feel yeah. angry. Your face yeah. is hot. Your chest yeah. is burning. Yeah. It's a, but there's it's always physical response. Stuff. That's yeah, why we use that response. word feeling, don't we? Because there are physical mm. responses to, to an emotion. Mm. Um, wow. You, you, you leave, you're leaving me reeling here, Rose, man. Come on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Give me something, you know? <laughs> um, 
we can all relate to somebody in our lives or even ourselves or someone who's had a difficult relationship with food or we've had a difficult relationship with food mm-hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. What guidance can you offer that person? Because, you know, I always like in these conversations for people to get the knowledge, to get the understanding, to hear the stories, but it's always nice for people to come away with something to think about or something to do. Yeah. I think um, if you're the person and you're concerned about someone else, I think the first thing I would say is listen um, without judgment because it's not always clear what the underlying motivator for the behavior you see is. Mm. It's very easy to simplify it and to think the solution is very straightforward where you just need to. Um, So I think it's about being open-minded and listening without judgment and being aware of your own responses and where that's coming from. Yeah. Is it fear making you get a little bit frustrated and cross and a bit rhinoceros like with that person? Are you, is it fear that's making you put your head in the sand and you don't want to recognize it or talk about it? So bringing a little bit of awareness to um, your own responses around what you're witnessing. I think we live in a society where diet culture is insidious and we're saturated in it. So I think if you are the person who is experiencing a problematic relationship with food, be self-compassionate. You're living in this society that tells us all the time that there's only one way to look and Mm. one way to be. And you have found a way to cope with something in your life. The only way you knew how at that moment. So reach out, talk to someone you trust, talk to a GP. Um, And I think with all problematic relationships, the first step is acknowledging that it's that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something you said there made me remember something I I realized recently was that sometimes you can become uncomfortable with other people's unhappiness. Like it can make you uncomfortable and actually it can, it can lead to you getting annoyed Mm. with them because you're like, stop it you should be happy i want you to be happy yes. your unhappiness is making me unhappy yes. stop it you know yeah. and, and it's not your fault but it's just it's something to recognize isn't it because mm. uh, i've certainly experienced that during lockdown with my wife um i was me and me and her were bickering and i later realized it was because i didn't like the fact that she was unhappy she's always happy usually <laughs> and i was like yeah. it sounds like a you problem jenny no no not yeah. a wife problem so yeah yeah um you don't great. always have to fix it no that's i suppose that's the message isn't it it's um yeah it's about those people that have they're having these challenges. It's just like we said at the beginning. It's about trying to understand, mm. trying to understand, be be empathetic, you know, and and sit with them in that space and let them run and let them say things that might not make sense or might not be true, but just let them get it yeah. out, you know. Absolutely, um, so Absolutely. important and really good advice. Um, what do you? You know, how does somebody permanently move away from yo-yo dieting or over restriction followed by overconsumption or labeling foods good and bad? This is something that I've seen so, honestly, like um uh I'd, over to you. <laughs> yeah. Um it's a journey. Yeah. It's a journey. There is yeah. no overnight fix. There's no. no wonder meal plan. There's no there's no magic bullet. Um, but it's a journey of two paths, in my opinion. And the first is the physiological rehabilitation. I'm going to use that word, mm-hmm. the nourishing of our body, getting it stood on stable ground. Because when we're eating erratically, our blood sugar glucose is all over, our blood glucose, our blood glucose is all over the place. 
Um, and that feeds cortisol, which then makes us feel anxious, which then interferes with our eating patterns because when we're anxious, we're not hungry. And, you know, it's by addressing that, you address a, a lot of things. So yeah. it's quite often people will come to me and go, well, I'm an emotional eater. And actually, when we've got them stood on steady physiological ground, that's not so much the case. They're responding to, you know, being in dietary chaos. Um, and the path of exploring why. You know, we've got to understand our inherited food script and bringing awareness to how these behaviors have been serving us and then developing the tools and skills to overcome those unhelpful behavior patterns. I think in the world of well-being, it's kind of we constantly just tell people, all you need to do is get up at five, journal, do some yogaring. <laughs> do yogaring, what's that? I've invented that. Um, <laughs> do some, read this self-help book. You know what I mean? Just it's, but we have to give people the rucksack. You can't send someone up a mountain without a survival pack, right? Uh, yeah. And I guess that's the work that you and I do. We go, right, here are the tools. This is what you need. So when that path deviates, when you lose your way, when there's a canyon you weren't expecting, you know what yeah. to do. Yeah. So I think it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a journey of two paths and understanding where those um, distorted beliefs you have around food have come from. Are they based in fact or fiction? As always, I absolutely love that explanation. What I took from that there was it, it's, like trying to stop yourself from identifying with a certain way of being like I'm mm. an emotional eater or I'm this, or I am that. And it's recognizing that it's a response. It's a response to something. What yes. am I responding to? Because yes. calling yourself an emotional eater seemingly has no resolution. There's there's, it, it almost forces you into an accepting place. Yes. You know, whereas yeah. responding, you know, if, if it's a response, then, First of all, there's a few questions. What am I responding to? Second of all is how can I respond differently? I suppose. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know? absolutely. Um, yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Wow, look at you. It's like I feel like I'm talking with Yoda. Um, yeah. God, my kids would not agree. <laughs> it's all right. I'm not going to talk to them, so we could just pretend. <laughs> pretend. Yeah. Very pretend. important. Very important. Uh, last question. Um, is there anything that you'd like to pass along that would help other people with their self-development, something that's helped you a lot in the past? Well, there is, and it's interesting because you just alluded to it. So oh, when sorry. I wrote down my answer to this, no, 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 no. It, I just think it you know, shows that we're on the same wavelength. Um, I wrote down the words, I think we look outward all the time. We look outward for validation, answers, explanations, and labels. And from my point of view, when I've been able to, to do the most healing work was when I quietened down all the noise and just allowed myself to sit with me, all of me, the best parts, the shadow parts, just being with Rose in the same way I would someone I love very much. That's lovely. That really is. That's really lovely. Um, thank you so much for today. You oh, you're are, so welcome. It's been no, a joy. It's been a privilege. It really has. Like um, from from myself to you, I'm super grateful. I'm sure everyone else will be too. Um, what's next for you and where can people find you? Um, well, professionally, 
continuing the work I'm doing, but I would love to be in a position where I can take reframe into the community and into schools and colleges, because I'd love to get to our young people before diet culture does. <laughs> so that's kind of my wish list goal. Um, you can find me at www.livewelllife.co.uk and all across social media at the same handle. Tell people what reframe is. What is it? So Reframe Club is a um, online self-directed set of coaching courses based around nutrition, intuitive eating, body image, um, and behavioral coaching, um, food psychology. And it's made up of audio and video coaching sessions, huge amount of resources, guided reflective practices, workshops, meditations, visualizations. We have a library of... um, Oh, a library of um i'm trying to think of the word um we have a library of i'm going to use the word exercise it is exercise videos but they are um what's the word i'm looking for from pt world adaptive adaptive there you go adaptive um led by our wonderful um instructor becky very warm very approachable very real um so that you can have a go at all kinds of movement in in your own home um but yeah, we give everyone access to all of those things for just £45. And then we use all our funds to allow us to give it away for free to charities that need their service users to have access to the same support. Is that £45? Just just £45? Everything. Lifetime. Everything. Wowzers. Why on earth wouldn't you do that? That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Rose, that, that, the price needs to go up on that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. If I could... I just let the whole world have it for free. Mm. I just would. This but, is the um, struggle, isn't it? When you're a well-meaning coach and you you want to help as many people as you can, mm-hmm. but you also need to like eat and have like a house and stuff. I know. I know. <laughs> it's I tricky, know. right? But I guess yeah, it yeah. is tricky. It is yeah. tricky. But yeah, I'm in, I'm in a I'm in a position where at the moment I can make that happen, and that's a that's a privilege, and I'm wow. happy to do it. You're a wonderful human, Rose. You really are. Thank you Thanks, so much Jane. for your time today. Thank and, you for having um, me. No, anytime. And um, I'm sure we'll get a reason to do this again sometime. And uh, yeah. I will speak to you soon. Thank you, Johnny. What a brilliant mind Rose has for nutrition, intuitive eating, and most things surrounding our relationship with food. I want to say a massive thank you to Rose for being on the podcast. So that's all from me for this episode. Thanks again to my podcast producer, Charlie from Chatter Podcast. And I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Self-Development Podcast. 